how fried is the audience? How fried is the audience? The audience <laughs> like, is very fried. Um, <laughs> can we say they're scattered, smothered, and covered? Or? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Human Element, Kara's podcast on modern marketing. Super excited today. We, are, we have a full crowd today. We've got Mike Law, president of Amplify. Mike, how are you? I'm doing good, Robert. How are you doing? Good. Martha Matthews, SVP Group Director of Local at an agency called Kara. That is right. Hi, Robert. Thanks for having me. Thanks. First time. That's right. I'm I'm a longtime listener, but I'm a first time contributor, actually. First time, first time, long time. We know how that works here in New York. <laughs> Eric Bryant, VP Director of Local Media Activation at our sister agency, 360i. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This is my second time participating. This is pretty exciting, isn't it? It is. I'd love to tell you you're going to get a patch, but uh, that or a, or a t-shirt, but that hasn't I'm happened. I'm for mine, so I know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all are both just trying to show me up since I've never been on. Well, that's well. Then you might actually get a t-shirt. <laughs> All right, as you may have noticed from the intro, we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to talk about media and politics, the third rail of American society. We'll see if we can get in some trouble. You guys have done a great job sort of putting together some pieces for our teams internally around looking at activity in the marketplace around, you know, what campaigns are buying and where they're buying it, and not just at the presidential level, but in local senatorial and, and even congressional campaigns. And so that sort of spawned this idea of, hey, let's talk about this. This is interesting stuff. And so that is really the root germination of the pod. So I'm super excited to do that today. What I want to do here to start is let's dive into the piece that you guys put together and, and send to the shop across the network. How did this begin? What was sort of the motivation to put this together and, and sort of how did it come about? Is there a little bit of a history there? I think, Eric, I'll start with you. Sure. There is a bit of a history. It started in the 2012 election cycle. Uh, that was right after the 2010 Supreme Court ruling that was Citizens United and without getting into too many details, too much of the legal stuff, uh, we knew that it was going to open the floodgates for political advertising in the local space. So we took the opportunity to put together a POV for our clients, and not only externally, but also internally for our team as well. And more recently in 2020, and that became a weekly update rather than every two years with each election cycle POV. This year for 2020, we moved it to a weekly update knowing how aggressive the spending was going to be this cycle. Let's start there. And anybody can jump in on this question. How aggressive is the spending this cycle? The word unprecedented. Don't say <laughs> it. We keep hearing it. It's a constantly moving target. This will, it will break a record for sure. It started at 5 billion. It moved to 7 billion. I think the last time we put together our own internal POV, it was 7.3 billion. But more and more, we're seeing analysts say that it could reach $10 billion. So, Martha, what are the implications when that happens in local markets? Can you give a little bit of an education to, to our audience around, you know, when that kind of money sort of washes into the marketplace, what are the implications at a local level? Oh, the many implications. 
So really, it's our responsibility to lead our clients now more than ever, really on multiple fronts, but specific to the political landscape. We need to guide them and navigate them through what will be a very crowded and noisy environment. We want to help them maintain their share of voice, break through the clutter. So really, it's up to us to educate them to discuss the potential impacts to their business and how we can mitigate those impacts. You know, we make recommendations on the front end when when they're still early in the planning process. So, you know, some strategic recommendations would be just, you know, being mindful of the political calendar while developing plans. We always recommend avoiding any TV testing during the month or two leading up to the election, shifting targeting toward the younger end of the demo during heightened political activity, and then targeting the older end post-election. But, you know, specifically tactics that we employ as we are stewarding their existing campaigns, you know, we're going to closely monitor political ad spending in the local markets, especially those that are expected to receive the most spend, those being Phoenix, Philly, Boston, LA, Atlanta. Every political year, we develop political preemption action plans for our clients so that we can explore. That sounds like a fun thing to put together, the uh, political preemption action plan. Does that have an acronym? Well, it doesn't, but you know, my (laughs) boss, Jennifer likes to have like catchy phrases for everything. So this is our, this is our preemption action plan. We'll call it PEP. Yeah, I think that works. (laughs) But basically just looking to alternate channels, non-preemptible channels where we can move any misplaced dollars from our TV schedules and getting clients approval early on on those plans so that we can then react quickly. And in fact, we actually just did implement this for Jack in the Box. We were seeing our current TV schedule was being blown out in the market of Phoenix, which is the number one impacted market across the country. They are projecting a quarter of a billion dollars in this election cycle alone just in Phoenix. And just on that, can you give a a comparative? What what would that be? You know, what's what sort of a normal situation look like? What is a normal situation? So, you know, Eric mentioned the seven point three billion overall that we are projecting. You know, the vast majority of that is going to be in TV. So, if you don't know, it's fine. But I mean, do you have a ballpark percentage like that's? I don't think I do. Off okay, that's fine. Head. That's fine. We don't have that. But the last time we analyzed the category from an election cycle, I believe political in the election cycle was, you know, it went from zero the year before to the number four category in spending. So we're talking about some major category spending really takes a huge impact on the local space. And in a year like 2020, when there's been so much disruption and and advertising dollars have really decreased, these stations are really counting on these political dollars to help balance out their years. Yeah, there's some survival in that. And Mike, that's a good segue to you, I think. From a partner perspective, this is to some extent, I, I won't say lifeline, that's overly dramatic. But I mean, this, more than any other year, this is something that's probably vitally important to them. Isn't that right? Yeah, obviously, we're in an unprecedented year. <laughs> <laughs> we're not doing the unprecedented drinking game, just so our All audience right. knows. Right. You guys aren't. <laughs> Jason might be. I was getting excited. You know, certainly in a year where you saw spend for so many really strong local categories like auto, like casual dining, like QSR, 
be down so much if it was a non-political year with the implications for local stations would, would be far, far greater. And even with the influx of money from the elections and from the local market races, it's still probably not enough to completely offset the trend. Now, the other half of it is the supply. Like, as we all know, you know, we continue to see TV ratings go down. So you've just got so many things converging at once in terms of supply and demand and new demand. So this will be even more interesting when we get to maybe a more normal year in 2024 to see, you know, what does the landscape look like then? So, you know, every four years, it just seems to be a completely different, different marketplace. Now, are the implications of that, if you've got sort of reduced dollars in the market outside of the political category and you've got declining ratings, does that mean you're just going to, if you're in one of these swing environments, you're just going to be absolutely, even more than normal, which is a lot, just absolutely deluged by political ads. Is that a fair estimation? It's a very fair estimation, I'd say. I mean, states are already seeing it. Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, all of these markets in these states are already in that situation where probably a fair share for the average viewer turning on the TV, they're seeing a huge amount of political ads and it's preempting the core advertisers. So we talked about the fragmented ratings and the diminished ratings. So not only are the core advertisers fighting for those to get to their previous audience levels, but so are the political advertisers fighting for all of those spots to get their previous audience levels. So it really is creating quite a clutter situation, but that in turn, for the core advertisers at least, leads to a struggle just to get a share of voice. Maybe just to add a little context to that, and Eric, correct me when, when I go astray here, but I think we also saw spending a lot earlier, you know, with all the lead up to the election and the, um, the primaries. At one point, I think it was through the first couple of months of the year, the number 10 national advertiser was Michael Bloomberg. So you think about the likes of AT&T and B&G and GM, and Michael Bloomberg as a single candidate was the 10th biggest advertiser. So the amount of ads that we're seeing is very apparent to voters. How did that product launch go? I, I don't remember. Was <laughs> I have so many jokes for that, but I'm I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> That is a staggering statistic for a campaign that was in the race, what, 45 days? I mean, it was not long, right? Was it two months? I mean, officially in the race? I believe it was November to March. Early March, yeah. So it was, okay, it was longer than I thought. Let's do this, Martha. When you talk to clients, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but like I want to get into sort of how are you helping clients make the best decision they can? And are they open to this discussion? Or are they somewhat naive about the implications? I mean, what's their level of awareness about how difficult the market is at this point, I guess? I think they're pretty aware. You know, we've definitely taken clients through presentations of the political landscape to kind of understand those implications and specifically to their business, you know, what we can do to lessen the impact there. You know, one thing that we typically recommend to our clients is, you know, in, in Newsday parts specifically, for TV, we recommend just reducing their presence in this area during the political window for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, local stations don't provide pod exclusivity like national does. So they run the risk of being sandwiched between, you know, two contentious political spots, which no one really wants to be in that environment. But 
it's also a challenge to maintain any kind of shared voice amid, you know, the noise. And so I, I think on top of that, there's a strong likelihood that their spots are going to preempt be preempted anyway. So strategically, it makes sense to shift that news weight into other day parts with less political demand. Thank you for that, Martha. That was great. Mike, that triggered a question that I have for you, because we were talking about news. You know, news is a complicated environment for some advertisers. I know we've done some work to sort of change that thinking a little bit, or at least propose a way of, of changing that. Can you talk a little bit about that and whether we're seeing you know, some of those initial reservations about being in and around news change at all for large brands? You know, because news has become so polarizing in the country, the knee-jerk reaction is you, you want to avoid, quote-unquote, news. And what you talked about, what we, we've tried to talk to clients about is supporting responsible journalism and reporting because that is a, a key part to the overall ecosystem, especially in the digital space. And I, I think, you know, across all the channels, you want to think about brand safety and, and contextual alignment and things like that. But I still think we have, you know, many brands who want to avoid the commentary of news. There's one thing to run during a traditional kind of newscast. Now, it is harder and harder to find down the middle type news, I think. A lot of it has become commentary based even just the straight reporting of the nightly news or the morning news, I think you can feel the tilt a little bit. Because even the afternoons, which for a while were, were quote unquote newsier, yep. you know, evenings have been kind of lost on, on multiple channels, not just one yeah. in particular for a while. But even the afternoons are, have a POV. Yeah, definitely. The way the questions are asked, the people that they're bringing on, the challenge of the, the questions, they're not reporting the news. They're definitely storytelling. I think at the same time, they're doing that because consumers are, are tuning in, right? They're, they're watching that. And when you talk about the polarization of, of both sides, like the people who are watching that love that. And, and you know, that's a weird balance for a brand because if you decide not to run there, you'll have a whole party saying, well, I'm not then I'm going to boycott you for pulling out. You got another party saying, I'm going to boycott you for, for staying in. So it is a rough balance. And I think, you know, you have to be, have to be fair about it as a brand. And I think you have to stay true to like what your brand's purpose is. And it's, it's never an easy conversation with clients. And, and one of the media quote unquote media challenges of it is that's where people are. There's so much viewership in news, whether it be TV, whether it be radio, whether it be digital, like there's a lot of audience there and we're looking for audience. So how do you balance that? Well, I'd like to reach a lot of people, but is that where I want, want to reach them? So it's, it's a constant conversation and, and a lot of policing to make sure that we're putting our brands in the right places. Yeah. Eric, you know, this, this gets me to a question that I've been interested to ask you since we put this pod together. If you're a congressional candidate, you know, you've been doing this, obviously, at least making observations here for the past eight years. If you're a congressional candidate, you know, much lower budgets, and yet you're trying to gain, you know, kind of the reach that TV can provide, what is their angle right now? Like, you know, if you're, if you're running in the Texas 23rd, or you're running in, you know, Massachusetts 6th, or, you know, wherever, what can you do? Or are you just sort of stuck? To a degree, you're stuck. It really depends on what state you're in. If you're in a state that isn't a high competitive state on the presidential level, then you're in a better position than a congressional candidate or 
the mayor candidate or whatever it might be down ballot in a state like Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, there is so much political money from the party and from the presidential level going into some of these states that it has really created an issue for the down ballot candidates because the rates are, have been driven so far up that they can't afford spots that they want. So these down ballot candidates, because of these high rates driven by the presidential election, these down ballot candidates are having to find other creative ways to spend their advertising money. And whether that be digital or whether it be more radio than TV, they're really kind of suffering from what's happening at the top of the ticket. Same true as, you know, senatorial candidates. You know, if you're the, you know, if you're a senatorial candidate in the Cunningham Tillis race in North Carolina, that's a tough spot to be in because the presidential candidates are dumping tons of money into that state. It's a tough spot to be in, but some of those races, like the one you mentioned, North Carolina, is a high-profile Senate race. Yep, so sure is. those candidates are getting a lot of support from the parties, from the PACs. That's going to be a very highly watched state on both the presidential and the Senate level. Quick, crazy question for you. state like Kentucky, right? Not a massive media market, yet both those candidates are incredibly well-funded, right? The McGrath campaign is one of the most highly funded challenger races in the country. Obviously, Mitch McConnell can find a few bucks. They can't possibly spend the amount of money they have in that market, can they? They're going to do their best. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's those kind of states. It's, you know, the same thing is true in Maine. These are markets that have high cost value. These aren't, we're talking about New York and LA. We're talking about some middle to small size markets that charge middle to small size rates. And in states like Maine and Kentucky, there's going to be a lot of money, but that's going to equate to a lot of spots. Yeah, That's kind of where I wish this conversation would go in future years. It's not necessarily about the headline grabbing money values that some DMAs are getting. We should be talking about the spots that are being purchased because an LA and a New York are always going to look at a big headline because of money being invested. But markets in Maine and Kentucky We'll never get that high-profile headline, but they may very easily get more spots purchased. Oh, for sure, for sure. That's really interesting. Martha, coming back to you, are you actively telling clients just park the money and wait? You know, not necessarily. I think it depends. You know, certainly we are trying to advise clients to get in early. I think that that does help. Place early, plan ahead, you know, do what you can to prepare for the impending madness, you know, but we do have clients that maybe aren't as active and they'll come in and they might want to do a test or just run a, you know, a quick local campaign. I, we just had someone come down and, you know, they were looking at literally like the last three weeks of October and I'm like, you don't want to do this. You know, this isn't the time you're not going to be able to break through. But I think it depends. You know, I think some brands do want to show up. And so it's just, you know, what's the best way to do that? Mike, I got a, I got an interesting one for you. Are you, are you excited about this one? I, I can't wait. You mentioned briefly in an earlier answer, advertiser boycotts. I guess here's my question. I, I don't want to get into whether people should or shouldn't. In certain shows, you know, on, on particular networks, there's been a lot of consumer outcry and uprising and requests for marketers to boycott 
and certain shows have been in that position for years. It's not something germane to just, just this election, right? How are those shows still functioning financially, right? I mean, they're, they're clearly being subsidized by the networks. They get great ratings, let's be clear. You know, he, he does great ratings, but he's in a position where his advertiser pool is pretty small. It's not that the advertiser pool is, is really small. It's when you look at who the advertisers are, it's a different makeup. Different kind. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's just a different makeup and the quality of the, the brands or, or the type of advertising. You're seeing a lot more direct response versus yep. branding. And that's why they're supported. And, and again, like a lot of people watch those shows and the people yep. who watch those shows are very engaged. They're not, you know, they're not watching them because they hate them. Yep. Therefore they support a lot of the brands that aren't in those shows. I mean, I'm not tying politics to NASCAR right now. I really am asking this from a non-political perspective. I really am. Yeah, yeah, I think if you think about NASCAR, if your driver drives the Tide car, you are going to buy Tide and you yeah. are never going to buy the competitor. And I think it's very similar. Like you want to support the brands that are supporting. And, you know, one of the things that, that we've done and, you know, subtle plug here, like is part of our investment framework around diversity is to ask all of our big media partners to help us understand what they do to, to protect diversity and to support diversity. And it's been really interesting because this isn't just about, you know, the show. It's, you know, who, who's on the show? Who are the showrunners? Who are the people? Who, who's the director, the technical expert? The, you know, all of these things come into play. And I think, you know, we're, we're holding the networks and the, and the content providers equally accountable to all of this. So it's not just about the show that shows up in the lots of other pieces to it, but, but they stay on the air because ultimately a lot of people watch and those ads work. And if they didn't, yeah. then they wouldn't be there. Just a quick follow-up. You mentioned the framework we put together for minority partners. What's sort of our status on that effort? And I know you've been working on that for a little while now. How is the progress on that going, I guess? I feel great about it. I mean, we are engaged with almost every one of our clients on, on some level. I think that we've done a much better job in terms of reach out to diverse and in particular black owned media. And we've engaged at the most senior levels. We've had, uh, I think, very productive conversations and we, we've helped clients better understand what their commitment and support of that has been. And then that's led to change and goals and aspirations moving forward. So I think, you know, the, the biggest thing, and, and Jackie has said this, and I think we all believe it, this is not just a one and done you know, 2020, we check the box and we move on. Like there is this need for systemic change in how we approach this. And I think the way that we've approached that, whether it be through the news project that we did or through PRISM, which is thinking about, you know, how we can buy, make sure we're reaching the most diverse audiences. We're building, the reason we call it a framework is because this is meant to live within your media plan for years to come. So I, I feel good. I mean, our clients are obviously super engaged and the reaction from the media owner community um, on all fronts has has been really good. And I'm probably most proud of just our, our own team for engaging in it so actively. And we've had no shortage of people raising their hands to kind of be part of the, what the solution needs to look like. You've been having these conversations a lot, right? With You know, whether it's uh, brand safety, whether it's hate speech, whether it's proximity to QAnon, whether it's just flat out pure disinformation. We are in the midst of, here we go, ding, have a drink, unprecedented situation as it relates to a meltdown of truth in the country, 
delivered through all forms of media, right? Like there's, there's issues everywhere. What have clients been coming to you on to sort of ask about on that front? Well, I think it, it ties back to a little what we were talking about before. Like, you know, how do we hold our media partners accountable and ask them to be at the same standards that, that we're at and that the brands are at. And I think what's, what's critical for the brands is that they have a North Star and a commitment to what their brand goals and vision and identity are. And if, if they can stay true to that, we have, I think, all the tools in the industry to support that, whether it be brand safety measures, whether it be, you know, the way that we can control where our ads are, are ending up and who we're actually spending money with. So I, I think all those, those controls exist. And it's important that the brand just be resolute in what their brand message and their brand image and their brand voice is, is going to be in all this. And I think that's what we're talking the most to, to clients about. Yeah. All right, Martha, you ready? It's time to write the end of year 2020 headline. It was the year of blank. The overuse of the word unprecedented. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, we sort of set that one up for you, didn't we? Yeah, y'all really did. No, I would say it was the year of disruption. Mm-hmm. You know, looking back at the beginning of the year, which, by the way, feels like a lifetime ago. For sure. We thought that the Olympics and the election would be the two biggest events impacting the marketplace this year. Now we know that the two disruptors are actually the global pandemic and the racial reckoning taking place across the country. And each of these are reshaping the election in a significant way. Both are changing how the fight is fought from campaigning to fundraising to rallies. They're also changing you know, how voting is taking place, when voting is taking place. And then I think arguably the most significant impact is that they're changing the fundamental issues. You know, how the candidates are responding, or in some cases, if, if they aren't responding at all, will certainly sway voters and could ultimately decide the election. Eric, there's been a lot in the press around the Trump campaign in particular being in and out of the market a couple of times. What do we make of that strategically? And what are the implications, like the practical media implications for them of doing that? Certainly there's, you know, there's an impact to their effectiveness in doing that, you would think. I think there is an impact. I think part of their in-market, out-of-market had to do with someone new taking a campaign and them not really seeing the data move that they want to see based on the advertising that they were doing. And frankly, they were getting drastically outspent by Biden in the process. Mm. So the implications for them, I don't think there's much, to be honest. Each of these candidates has a sound base, and there is probably a narrow area of the population that is swayable to one side or one candidate or the other. And yes, in the past few months, Biden has done much better fundraising than the president has. But at the same time, Trump has said he is willing to put his own money into this. He has wealthy party supporters who have said that they're going to put their own money into it, specifically in Florida, to help sway that state. So yeah, there was a pause in campaign media for Trump. I don't think it's going to have much of an impact. I think it was a good headline that the president Mm. paused his media. 
But in the end, I don't think it's going to have much of an outcome on the election. Are there price implications? It goes both ways. On one side, the candidate has access to the LURs, the lowest unit rate, and that's the political protection yep. window. So they get to pay the lowest unit rate that a station is charging for a given time of media. So there's that. But then on the other hand, I would venture to guess that the majority of the money being spent in support of either candidate is actually coming from the PACs. And the PACs don't have access to the LUR. It's only the candidates that do. So these PACs are paying exponentially over what the LUR is. And frankly, they're going to pay whatever it takes to run. So whether they canceled August and put it back into September, is that going to have a big impact? I don't think it will have much, but at the rates that they're paying, I don't think they care. They don't care. Yeah. Mike, crazy question for you. Again, not a political question, a strategic question. Okay. It looks like the networks and not just CNN and MSNBC have made a more conscious effort to either reduce or not carry some of these rallies. Is that because ratings are down or do we owe that to a, is that a, you know, they're not performing as well from a viewership perspective or is it something else? I unfortunately think it speaks directly to their, how they tilt or lean or however you want to say it. I think it's a lot just in their editorial, like the talking heads are getting more people listening than just allowing the candidates to have their time to state their case. So you can listen to them state their case on, on a streaming service. You can go to C-SPAN, but the, the networks that you mentioned, and I think the kind of quote unquote cable news networks are, they're seeing better ratings and better engagement around the talking heads. Eric, last one for you, and then get excited, everybody. We're going to the lightning round. Here's my question for you. You mentioned Citizens United, and obviously that has fundamentally changed the way campaigns get invested in and the amount of money that is awash in the campaigns. Do we have a perspective as a media organization around whether it would be beneficial for brands and I'm from a brand perspective, I'm not talking about public policy. I'm not talking about, you know, citizens. From a brand perspective, would it be better if we went to publicly financed campaigns? We don't have an agency perspective on it. I think that's an interesting question and probably would be very aligned with ideology of the parties. But no, we don't have an agency perspective. It certainly would potentially limit the money. It would probably drastically limit the money. And I think if you look at other countries and how they do it, we probably could learn, at least in respect to the impact on media, some countries limit the number of days or weeks that politicians can campaign, including in media. So it probably makes it a much more enjoyable experience in some other countries, but this is where we are and, and this is what the result of Citizens United has done. I think people saw it happening as it was happening and some Participants would probably want to roll that back, but whether that happens or whether we go to a publicly financed election. It has implication for the channel, right? We all sort of nodded our head and said, look, it burns the channel for a period of time. I don't know that it's long lasting, but it certainly has implications for the channel. And, that, you know, I think that's more where my question comes from is, would we be better off as people who care about media and the performance of media if we could find a way to, I don't know, do that more intelligently? I'm sure we would all be happier if we didn't have wall-to-wall -wall weeks of political commercials. But at the same time, you know, I, this year I read so many articles about the ownership groups 
of these local media stations and how their ownership footprint aligns with the typical competitive states. So it mm. could be assumed that some of these ownership groups are actually acquiring stations in states that they know will be competitive and will repeatedly get the high-profile dollars to, in essence, help their bottom line. And, and these stations, as much hard work as it is, and they're reaping the rewards financially for sure. Yeah, sure. All right. Are we ready for the lightning round? Ready. All right. Martha, we're going to start with you. Most enjoyable personal moment of the pandemic. Oh, most enjoyable person. God, there haven't been many, have there? <laughs> it's a short list. Yeah. So, I mean, I have a proud mom moment. If that Lay counts. it on us. Okay. So my son, Henry, who's a junior in high school, he was just selected for the National Honor Society like two days ago. So we're super excited about that. And that was, that was an enjoyable moment. Well, congratulations to Henry. That's amazing. Thank you. Oh, I'm so happy for Henry. Thank you. Mike, I think we I asked you that question, didn't I? I think you have, yes. All right. Well, then give me this. Do you remember the first time you voted? Uh, yes. Was it a presidential race or an off year or a dog well, catcher? What yeah, was I'm it? I'm not going to joke and say in eighth grade, I voted for the student council. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's what you were. If that's, you were all right. Touche. That counts. I was speaking more of, as a registered voter. Yeah, uh, it would have been the 96 election. And I actually do have a good memory of this because it was done in our local farmhouse. And I yep. went with my parents and uh, voted. It was Dole versus Clinton. I will not reveal who I voted for. I also remember going in and I really only known about the presidential election. And there was about 400 other buttons you had to pull. I'm like, who are all these people? What do I do? So I tried to remember long stories. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, at that point, committed to being better about understanding what the other important topics of any election were. I have a story about that, actually, since we shared that, Mike. That was the first time I voted as well. Yeah, in 96. I was 20 years old, and my mom asked me to go vote with her. So I'm like, all right, I'll go vote. You kind of have to know my mom to appreciate this story, but she wrongfully assumed that I would be voting for her candidate. So... You know, we went and voted, and on the way home, I thanked her for encouraging me to vote, and then I broke the news that our votes actually canceled each other out <laughs> because I voted for Clinton and she voted for Dole. And she's never made that mistake again. And for the record, you know, we continue to vote along different party lines, but <laughs> made for a good story. Well, the, the family that votes against each other stays together. There you go. Eric, you remember the first time you voted? I don't. <laughs> I've been listening to all these great stories and I don't remember. I actually just pulled out a calculator to find out what election it would have been. That would probably be 1992. And okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall. Yeah. The first time I voted, I actually worked on this campaign was 1988. I voted for Mike Dukakis and Lloyd Benson. Mm. That was the infamous, you're no Jack Kennedy, Senator Dan Quayle, vice presidential debate. And what I remember about it is, to this day, I'm pretty sure I have a Dukakis Benson poster in my room in my parents' house at home that's like, you know, back behind like an old stereo. So maybe I'll bust that one out, put that on Twitter for the pod. Have you ever worked for a political campaign at any level? We'll just go around the horn. Mike, we'll start with you first. Does a great student council count? 
Mike's really <laughs> hanging on to eighth grade. Yeah. No, I, I have not. Okay. Martha. Sadly, I have not. But I will say, like, I've definitely contemplated it this year, even if it's just maybe, you know, volunteering at my polling location. I think maybe I'll take pizzas over there for the volunteers because truly I admire what they're doing. And I think this year, you know, people are risking their lives with COVID, like having to go volunteer at the at the polling places. And I, you know, I want to be a part of it. I think that there's like such an urgency and importance this time around. I'd like to be involved, even if it's just in a small way. I love that. Support the franchise. Eric. I have. I volunteered on a city council election here in Atlanta. Oh, gosh. About eight years ago. Did the whole phone call, door knocking, all that kind of stuff. Yard signs and yards. So, yeah, I've done that. Did the candidate win? Candidate did win twice. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. What Martha was just saying, though, I mean, it's really impressive that we have election day off this year. So it really gives opportunity to find a way to participate in the system. And I think that's great that the company supports us in that. All right, last one. These are complicated and occasionally dark times. Uh, what single thing gives you the greatest reason for hope? Eric, we'll start with you. <laughs> my mind first went to my new love of cigars and bourbon. So that gives me hope. That, I tell you what, I've gotten a lot of answer in 85 episodes. Cigars and bourbons near the top, mm-hmm. right, Jason? That's That's right up there. Yeah. Martha. You know, I think my kids give me hope. They inspire me. I think that they're smart and they, you know, when it comes to politics, you know, we, we try not to sway our kids, you know, they'll look at us and say like, are we Democrats or Republicans? And I'm like, you're whatever you want to be, you know, this is what I am. And you, you need to make that decision and kind of figure that out on your own. But, you know, there are other things get, that give me hope as well right now, but I'd say maybe my kids. Love it. All right, Mike, take us home. Well, it's not the Red Sox, right? <laughs> you know what? I didn't say a word, did I? I didn't I didn't bring it up. I didn't mention the fact that Luke Voigt has more home runs than you guys have wins. Well, you guys are gonna scroll into the eighteen playoffs. So <laughs> but just to keep that consistent thread through all our podcast stories. Yeah, I mean I'm an eternal optimist, so I really believe that there's a lot more silver linings in this year than, than we all see right now. But I will default to the same thing as, as Martha. I think my, my kids certainly are, are the inspiration. You know, just seeing them, how resilient they were through all of this, how they've changed the way they do things, but remained optimistic and um, been great friends to their friends and learned to, to support each other. So, yeah, I think it's, it's great. And I guess it gives you something to, to be proud of. All right. Well, on that whole flotilla of goodness from cigars and bourbon to children and everything else, we're going to end it. You guys are fantastic. Thank you so much for making time today. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us here for another special political edition of The Human Element. Remember, you can find us anywhere you find your pods. Don't be afraid to give us a like or a comment, and we will be back out to you real soon. Remember, in the meantime, be well. Be just. We'll see you next week.